Welcome to the Sometimes Weekly Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Butler. I'm joined as sometimes by my sometimes co-host, Adam Thorne. Adam, how are you doing? I'm well, Nick. How are you? <laughs> I'm very good. Yeah. It was a very professional hello. Uh, very well, muted. Sometimes I can put it together. As if we're on NPR. Uh, well, it's good to see you. Good to see you. How have you been? I've been fantastic. Good. Um, obviously, it's been a couple weeks since the last episode. And I haven't seen you. You haven't seen me. We're going to get into that <laughs> in a second. But the last episode, we've got, I mean, I've gotten feedback. I don't know if you've gotten any feedback from uh, friends and family and strangers alike. I, I read the 935 Spotify comments. Yes. And we have an average rating of 4.78 stars, which I, I'm very proud. I'm very proud of the work that we've done. And by we, I mean you. I, I would like to uh, sort of recap a little bit of last week's episode. And I say last week, it was several weeks ago, uh, but... I don't know if you've seen the name of the podcast, Sometimes Weekly. But in the last episode, uh, we did talk about uh, some things which I think are important to sort of cue the listener into, just in case this is their first time listening. For example, we, we talked about and told the story of, of meeting Barack Obama, um, and we outlined for the first time our sort of plan to do a reverse James Corden. Yes. Which is the idea that we're going to... Uh, as James Corden has James Corden, what he did basically was become famous in the United Kingdom, eh, ish, uh. ish, and then went across the pond and really hit it off here, and, and then uh, usurped all of our media. Uh, I actually don't mind the guy, but uh, that was until, he staged a coup. Yeah, he staged an, a coup. Uh, and as a British person coming to the United States, that's something that sort of uh, grinds my gears. But the reverse James Corden is that we do the opposite. We become mediocrely well known uh, in the a United symbol States. of mediocrity. A symbol of mediocrity here in the United States, and then we go to the United Kingdom eventually uh, and, and uh, invade Britain, uh, yes. as some people uh, may say in a later segment. But uh, part of the reverse James Corden, this is where I want to cue the listener in in case this is our first episode, is that uh, you, Adam, uh, are wearing uh, both a wig and a robe. Uh, oh, yes, and the, the promotional shots that we did for our pilot uh, – also show that I was wearing that then as well. Yes. So you've been wearing it since the first episode, this wig, this robe, which is in the manner of a member of the House of... Uh, House of Lords. It's really in... My my English uncle really honed in on it. Technically, mm-hmm. it would be court dress for the House of Commons Speaker. Okay. So like if they were going to the state opening of Parliament, this is what they would be wearing. Because okay. a, a House of Lords member would have red robes on. Gotcha. However, I was trying to take the simple route out, or yeah, simple and you, route. And you're wearing here. a black robe mm-hmm. accented by gold uh, trim. trim. Mm-hmm. Thank you. You're wearing, as we established in the last episode, a wig which would be more toward the the, the American, the American George Washington yes. wig, uh, curls, and so yep. so on. Yep. Uh, and the whole point of you wearing all of this is not just because. Uh, we think that if you wear it long enough, you'll become a member of the House of Lords, and thereby we will we will have succeeded in Operation. And what's all James, this about? Versus James Corden. What it is is we are waiting. Uh, you are in waiting, wearing the robe and waiting. I am a lady in waiting. Yes, <laughs> you are a lady in waiting, <laughs> wearing the wig and the robe until we, uh, as sometimes weekly, acquire. Uh, an interview with a member of the House of Lords, and it, oh, upon, that was that word dance was that was good. Upon that interview. Uh, you will then be able to derobe uh, and take the wig off, which will, uh, I suppose, do something. I mean, I don't know, but until then, you have to wear it. I mean, even at, even though this is an all at the moment an all audio podcast, uh, you will you will continue to maintain. I I have laced this room 
with a number of hidden cameras. <laughs> well, fantastic for whoever you're sharing that with. John Quinones. Uh, <laughs> I hope, I hope, in this scenario, who are we? What just, would you do? Yeah, we're, we're, yeah, exactly. That's fantastic. Before we move on, I have yeah. to issue my first in a long series of apologies. Oh, boy. Of um, inaccurate uh, descriptions that I have made. In this in this podcast series, the uh, now the second of thirty seven hundred parts, as yes. we uh, discussed a couple weeks back, that when uh, we he- we're having a having a little fun at Speaker Michael Martin's expense, and I said that he was Northern, Speaker of the House of Lords, Speaker of the House Commons, Commons, sorry, yes, um, Baron Martin of Springburn, mm-hmm. as he was then known when he died, and I said that he was um, from Northern Ireland. Speaker Michael Martin was not Northern Irish. He was Scottish. Very different. Yes. Well, very, very might be a strong word. Yeah, different. They're, we'll say they're, different. they're different. So yeah. we, we, I apologize to all of the listeners and the the viewer uh, <laughs> for for my inaccuracy and uh, our her research department is well. There's a reason we employ a research department due to my inaccuracies. Yeah, and what's interesting is I got my report uh, and no mistakes whatsoever, uh, not only in the last episode, but they, they combed my entire life. So that's a recap of the last episode. We're glad we got it off the ground. Sure. There's a lot, a lot of positive feedback. I do want to say, though, uh, to all the people that came up to me on the streets as I thank was walking you. around. Thank you. Yeah, yeah no. Seriously, it, thank you. The feedback uh, is welcome at all levels, whether it's uh, agreement or, or calling for uh, more clarity on certain topics. And I'm actually glad Thorne brought up uh, the mistake he made with uh, Belfast and Northern Ireland and Scotland. I did have several emails. Uh, I received several emails from angry British sycophants uh, who, uh, like Thorne, are self-described monarchists, uh, and uh, were sad to see that he had gotten something wrong. It, it was it was really it was an egregious it was an egregious error on my part. Other than the um, the media firestorm that we created yeah. uh, with our debut episode and the the controversy that I spurned with my. Inaccurate historical reporting. For our non-British is, listeners, that's controversy and spurned is sort of like created. Thank you. Um, other other than that, and I because this is because we really we haven't really spoken in the past couple of weeks. Uh, no. How how have you been? You know, it's just you know we just got past the holiday season. And, yeah. Uh, you know, big time be around family and friends. For sure. Yeah. No, I not I, recording. That's right. I've been in my I call it my December melancholy. Sure. Uh, for all the reasons you just listed, being around friends and family. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, and uh, the sun is just kind of turns on us, but it, it's it's out. It's out uh, at the moment. Uh, we'll see how how long that lasts. They say it goes up, it goes down. It comes in, it comes out. <laughs> you can't explain that, folks. You can't explain it. They go the sun, the Greek gods. <laughs> The Greek gods, they watched the sun. Okay, whether you laugh, bring the, bring the microphone away. There you go. We are not trained professionals. Dear, dear listener, well, some of us are. Uh, some of us have been in a lot of years to be here. You know, thank you for asking. It has been some time, and the last couple of weeks uh, have been uh, very interesting. Uh, first, I, I went, as we sort of discussed last week, uh, you called me humble. I, I disagree with that, which I, in and of itself is a, uh, is a humble statement. Uh, that uh, I, I had my doctorate, or I've, I'm a doctor. I actually had my commencement at the University of Dayton a few weeks ago, went and attended with the family. 
uh, it was a beautiful ceremony uh, in uh, it's a University of Dayton, uh, as I said, and and uh, that means that there was a Catholic uh, commencement, uh, which uh, is the same thing except for um, it's. Uh, <laughs> It, it, it has an automatic melancholic nature. It, so given the time of year, the place right. that you're at, and the people that you're with, right. three wrongs do not make a wrong. Right. There is that underlying uh, sort of Catholic guilt that oh, uh, that yes. lines the work of, of that church. Uh, but I found it to be, I don't know, there is something about the, the reverence of a ceremony, a pomp and circumstance, which I believe is... Uh, can be helpful, can be a useful way to celebrate the, the mark of a milestone. Being vested. Right, and to sort of just celebrate in that way, especially with the family, was fun. But that rolled into, the commencement rolled into, uh, a week or two later, I was up in Albany, New York, uh, to celebrate both the new year, but also the launch or the relaunch of Sometimes Weekly. I, uh, I found it Sometimes Weekly, and this actually scares me. This was a statistics that our research department pulled for me. I started Sometimes Weekly in Albany nine years ago. We're coming up on the nine-year anniversary. I wanted to sort of just celebrate the relaunch, the idea that, again, in sort of the same way of the commencement, the pomp and circumstance, the idea of doing something and acknowledging uh, a milestone, to mark a milestone, as, as many say, uh, it was to do a launch party uh, in Albany. We went to Old English Pub. There's a portrait there of Winston Churchill, uh, noted a disliker of fascists, who I... I I've also I've, I have heard of him. I also tend to dislike, uh, and he also drank a lot, so it's a fitting portrait for a pub. But celebrated with some friends there. A, a, a great group of people came out. Uh, a lot were asking about the uh, wig situation, what you're wearing, and so we will actually try to get a photo up of you somewhere for these people to access, whether that's the Patreon, Patreon.com/slash/sometimesweekly, or some Please other donate. some other location. We'll see. Um, but no, yeah, celebrated in Albany. Took in the new year. It was a very nice way to sort of, all right, so closing the chapter on the education piece, opening the chapter on, or reopening, since, again, it's been around for nine years, on Sometimes Weekly. It was a really helpful, I think, a really good event, uh, and I'm excited to do more events like that in, in the city, uh, New York City, and Washington, D.C., to celebrate with folks as this thing continues to grow. Um, and in that regard, mark your calendars now, people. The third uh, thing I've sort of been up to has been working on the newsletter side of Sometimes Weekly. And so please subscribe. This is for folks who, in addition to the audio format, who like to hear the voice speak into mm -hmm. the ears. Is, these are for people that can read. These are for the readers out there. Uh, and statistics say that that's most likely to be women. Um, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's a true thing. Women read more than men. That's just a fact. That's not even a joke. Uh, and so the newsletter is... However, that was presented like an ideal Dr. Nick Butler joke. Well, I, well again, I, you know... Which this, is why that got me. I, I'll, I'll leave it to history to decide what is and isn't funny. Uh, the newsletter is being worked on. You can uh, subscribe on Substack. But uh, if you go to post.sometimesweekly.com, that's where you'll find the newsletter. That is weekly. I mean, there's a weekly newsletter going out there. I know we call this thing sometimes weekly. It's been over a week since the last episode. The newsletter is the core foundation of the work I'm doing. The writing is the base I'm building the rest of this thing upon because I think it's important. Uh, I think it's important to know whether or not the founder and CEO of your company is a crook. I happen to read your Christmas message to the world. Yes. Well, actually, I think you said it was to the nation. I took it as to the world sure. because I represent an international audience right. for this podcast, and I um, sp 
just speaking of those those reviewers, I do know that we have an international audience. Yes, it was it was very compelling, and it's a it was a very nice way to set the tone for right. for the work that you are doing and the work that that we are doing and the work that we will do for the work that is yet to be done. I I agree. I think that was perfectly said, and I couldn't have said it any better myself. Uh, the news, yeah, the Christmas greeting went out to the nation on December 25th, uh, 2023. Uh, it, it's written, um, inspired by Dr. Nicholas Murray Butler, who's a figure in American history you've never heard of. Uh, and the reason you've never heard of him is because the moment he died, we all forgot who he was. And I think that's fair. I wouldn't know who he was if he didn't share my name. Uh, but he was a, uh, Republican at the time in the, in the 1900s, early 1900s. Uh, candidate for vice president uh, with William Howard Taft after William Howard Taft's uh, vice presidential candidate died. But uh, this was in his uh, Taft's first run for president, which apparently he lost because Nicholas Murray Butler never became the vice president. Uh, and Nicholas Murray, but- Murray Butler won the Nobel Peace Prize, which again is really set up things. He was the president of Columbia University. As a fellow Dr. Nicholas Butler, this guy has really just fucked me because that's those are, and I have to go and win the Nobel Peace Prize. I think that's or a, or just win an election, and well, you've won an election before. I I've won. Well, this is where the research department's going to start digging up some some issues. So let's move on. the The <laughs> newsletter uh, will be will be really focused on the twenty twenty four election, and I I kind of write in a way that um, I'm just trying to explore my thoughts in the same way that this is this podcast is a way for us to explore our thoughts and have discussion and dialogue. So too will the newsletter. And that brings us into our first segment for the podcast. We're going to talk about the 2024 election. And obviously in the coming uh, sometimes weeks and months, we're going, to, we're going to have more and more conversations about the 2024 election. And I just want to sort of set the stage uh, as we get into those conversations because it's, we have just under a year to go until the election. And, you know, if, if you're someone like me where you're always in, uh, sort of interested in politics – the way that the 2024 election is being talked about in most places is very pessimistic or anxiety-driven sort of coverage and conversation. And I think that that, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I just want to sort of set the stage of it's a new year. The 2024 election is in, what, eight months? Uh, ten months. Ten months. So the 2024 election is ten months away. And the coverage of it that, you know, in, in most sort of publications, media entities – and, you know, I, I will even, you know, be willing to say, perhaps rightfully so, mm-hmm. is based in anxiety and pessimism and fear, which, yes. uh, I, you know, my personal feeling is with that amount of time until the election, we're maybe getting ahead of ourselves in, in some of the doomsdaying that's occurring. Now, the, the pessimism is typically coming from uh, individuals that are highly engaged and highly informed. So how how can you divorce their pessimism from that of of people that don't follow the news as closely as as those that do? Yeah, I mean, I think there are different things at play that do need to be distinguished, right? So there's a general, I think, a general anxiety in the United States, which is fair. Because we have just emerged from a pandemic, mm-hmm. uh, and the former president is on television saying he wants to be a dictator for one day, uh, which just, you know, just I, one day. I take him at his word. Uh, and how could you not? 
you know, uh, previously, you know, within the last uh, three years ago, I would say, uh, give or take, uh, he, he had his uh, supporters storm the Capitol building. And he was impeached twice. If you remember, the first impeachment was over withholding military funding from Ukraine and, uh, uh, and in order to dig up dirt in, on Joe Biden. And you may remember uh, Russia has invaded Ukraine since that first impeachment. And the second impeachment was for inciting insurrection, which he now uh, faces criminal charges for doing as well. And not, and not a lot of people know this, but he um, is facing 91 felony charges. Yes. Yes. And I, I think so. Again, that sentiment, if you're someone who's aware and uh, not even politically engaged, but aware, that will cause an anxiety that is totally fair and grounded. And I'm not here to tell you that reality is not the way you think. And mm -hmm. uh, Joe Biden is your savior and just fall in line. None of that stuff. That's all. That's awful. That's just ridiculous. Pessimism, I think you're right, too, is a deeper form of that, of someone who is uh, entrenched in a deeper level than just those broader uh, understandings of goings ons and are uh, at a deeper level because of their understanding of the situation and the potential fallout from electing someone like Donald Trump, they are turning to pessimism as uh, an expression of that anxiety. There are certainly, and I think this is, ex this is really important to talk about because there are, are a number of people, uh, uh, thousands of people who are turning their anxiety into action. I mean, that's the work mm -hmm. of, of activism, that's the work of political involvement and community organizing, and there are plenty who are doing that as well. But uh, not everyone has that opportunity. Uh, if you're right. working a job and you're, you know, all these things, uh, raising a family, I mean, it, it becomes much more difficult to have an outlet like that. Or working two jobs because the cost of living is outrageous Correct. and you're not paid enough. Right. You know? Yeah, exactly. And so, again, this is not to diminish... Uh, my the way that I talk about things is not to diminish the very real fears and anxieties and pessimism, uh, pessimism that is justified. It's not to do that because look, I I have those same anxieties and fears, but I just feel like we're at a point where the only thing you can really try to do is to funnel it into optimism, to stay optimistic until there's a reason uh, to at least temporarily suspend the optimism. For example, after January sixth. Uh, in the immediate aftermath, there's a, there's a fair reason to be to lose your optimism, mm -hmm. um, and that happens constantly. And I think it's just sort of a a, a, a thing that you we need to learn to manage a little bit, because the truth is, uh, the truth is we are not going to change anything, and that is a scary thing to come up against. So uh, yeah, when you have that kind of thought, uh, I think a, a tactic that I use. Is, is sort of to ground myself in, in that understanding. Um, and I was watching an interview with Stephen Colbert, and he said in, in developing his show every single day, having to watch the news up to 5 p.m., and it might change in the last 30 minutes of producing his show, what he has to do when something awful comes across his desk and his writers have to do is he said, we have to pull the car over, vomit, say, is this as bad as we think it is? It is. Yeah, it is. And get back in the car and start driving again and go, okay, how do we make it funny? And when you get back in the car, you're, you're, what you're going to do next is different. For some people, it'll be humor. For some people, it'll be writing. For some people, it'll be... Driving faster. Driving faster. <laughs> for some people, it'll be protesting. Uh, there are many different ways. For some people, it will just be voting. I mean, I think that's entirely fine. As long as you remain aware and can do all you can to, to sort of uh, train your disposition into optimism. And this comes to another point that I would talk about, too, which is the importance of community in a time like this. Very important you find people who uh, are 
uh, at least similarly minded to you who understand those fears and anxieties that you have and who can, by uh, talking together, at least ground yourself and, and begin to do the work of lifting out of the pessimism that may exist in the anxiety. Again, these things are very different from medically diagnosed depression and anxiety, which are real and real world trigger things can trigger those conditions. I don't want to diminish any of that. I think that's very important to distinguish. However, Nick Butler is a doctor. Oh boy. Uh, I am a doctor, not a medical doctor, uh, but I am willing to write prescriptions uh, go to patreon.com slash sometimes weekly and you can get your free prescription when you sign up and give me your money. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, yes. So now that we've laid this sort of foundation of how I think about these things, mm-hmm. this is not a discussion I want to have every single time we talk about the election because it's a difficult discussion to have and it's a very nuanced discussion. Yes. And it's one that it's one that requires and trust rather rather places on the listener a trust that they understand what we're doing here, that uh, we are not trying to diminish their uh, very real feelings. There's no attempt to really even change their mind. The only thing that's happening here is two people talking about something. Uh, And if you as a listener find that interesting and it helps in any way, that's what we're here to do. And with that, let's talk about Donald Trump. Uh, Donald Trump- What a lovely and encouraging segue. (laughs) So where 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 should we start? Where should we start with him in this, in in the context of twenty twenty four? Is it do do we start with his political standing? Do we start yeah. with the legal challenges? Where does the story? I mean, I guess it would be an origin story for this particular election. Yeah, my I mean my my sense is where we start is by zooming out and talking. We all know how bad Trump is. I really don't think there's. It's almost pointless to talk about this man specifically, but we'll we'll certainly do so in probably this episode and future episodes. But to start the conversation on Trump, I actually think it's important to to pull back and talk about the Republican Party and mm-hmm. conservatism in the Mer- in America today and how that movement has been entirely co-opted, not just by Trump, but by a type of thinking which prompts uh, rather props Trump up. Yes, yes, the the enablers of the past generation. The enablers. The enablers uh, that have opened the space for this kind of ideology to reemerge. And the way that this ideology reemerges is by really playing on those things we just talked about, fear, anxiety, and pessimism, and suggesting that there is indeed a way we can solve it. And in fact, if you give us the power, we will solve it for you. Um, Which is why I want to just... reiterate again that we're not here to solve the listener's problem. We're here to try to talk about these things and engage in dialogue. But there are uh, political people, political individuals who are very aware of what's happening in the world and they know how to play on those things. People like Steve Bannon and Roger Stone, a friend of the pod, Roger Stone. Yes, Mr. Pebble. Uh, Roger Pebble, I should say. Thank you. Uh, And when those people find someone like Trump to drive the car, mm-hmm. we're back in the car again. It's a different yeah, car. Yeah. It's coming this in the one, opposite this direction. A, this one is a Pinto. Yeah, it's a, it's barreling towards us. Uh, and when when these political strategists, who are truly evil people, and I want to again distinguish the difference between the political stat- strategists like Steve Bannon and Roger Stone and Donald Trump and the people who ultimately vote for or support this ideology. Those are two different, separate things. Mm-hmm. It's not to remove agency. By any way from the voter The voter has agency when they choose to support those things But I would say People who understand politics and human nature Can play on 
the way that people may act when mm-hmm. presented with a certain situation and when fear, anxiety, and pessimism are allowed to fester in a broad way, that uh, it leads to nihilism. And when you have one party that's really willing to totally embrace a nihilistic way of thinking, uh, that's when you get someone who uh, everyone knows is a clown, everyone knows is a fraud, everyone knows has committed crimes, everyone knows he sent and incited his supporters to storm the capital of the United States, Mm -hmm. everyone knows tried to stay in power, Everyone knows that Mike Lindell, my pillow man, was photographed standing outside of the the Oval Office holding papers that said uh, invoke martial law uh, and uh, basically stage a coup. Uh, and everyone knows that when he says he wants to be a dictator for a day, he doesn't wa- he doesn't really mean just one day. Uh, and everyone knows when he talks about putting uh, migrants into camps on the southern border uh, that we're talking more than just a way to solve the border crisis. We're talking about, again, an ideology that views people, uh, specifically minority people, in, a, in an entirely different way. And the reason dehumanized. The reason you dehumanize uh, those populations is because in order to successfully f- uh, sort of prey on fear, anxiety, and pessimism, you do, offer, you do have to offer some element of hope and I say that in a weird way because it's not real hope, but the hope is we can restore to you, the person who's on our side, the life you were promised and in fact you should have had. And the only thing standing in the way of that are these people we're going to put into camps. They're the migrants uh, or it's uh, you know the people who are our political enemies. That once you start dehumanizing your political enemies, mm-hmm. you start justifying political violence. So... I really think of this as a much deeper issue than Trump. I don't think, uh, again, I don't think there's really too much use in talking about Trump uh, as an individual because of all the things I just laid out that we know. And I I excluded uh, 50 more things that I could have listed of extraordinarily yes. troubling behavior. And so that, that, that makes you wonder, how, how does it become that, you know, a guy who fell off the turnip truck into a podcast and uh, is sitting across from a guy wearing a wig from an old country lawyer over here uh, i'm just a, a country doctor sitting across from a guy wearing a wig and a robe how is it that we're aware of what's going on with trump and how bad this is and how mm-hmm. it's antithetical to anything that's in our uh, founding documents and constitution and uh, the rule of law and uh, political civility and so on and so forth all things all things that we are all taught in school yes uh, how is it that just two schmucks like us mm-hmm. uh, are able to distinguish this, but uh, an entire political party infrastructure is unable to confront these things. Uh, and why is it that uh, the media in large swaths are unable to maintain these conversations in a way that make clear the stakes of what we're facing? This is the point where I think it really, you know, this is why we must remain optimistic, is these things. And I, I think it's hard to, to do that when you realize... It is institutional. It is the Republican Party. It is the media establishment, mm-hmm. which wishes to maintain this as a wh- typical horse race. Uh, well, as, as, a, as a way to keep profit margins. To keep people interested, the story of the day, mm-hmm. find out after the break what he said this time. Right. And, 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 like, fine, that's their business, good for them. And there are certainly reporters and journalists who are doing very, very good work although increasingly those journalists are being fired from the networks and from the mm-hmm. Washington Post, the, the reporters who are truly 
um, writing about these things. I think about at CNN, uh, John Harwood, uh, the Washington Post uh, this week, uh, also let go of 250 employees, including uh, columnists there who had been writing about the threats to democracy and these sort of uh, what people think of as abstract ideas. Uh, and I, I don't think the, these things are very abstract. I, think I, actually, I, I completely agree with you. They cannot possibly be abstract ideas based on the fact that, you know, we're sitting here being able to have this discussion right now. You know, we, we can disseminate it and and we invite and would love to have discussions right. with other people with varying varying viewpoints, at least the viewpoints that would be still democratic, small d. Right. C- certainly. I mean, that's, par- that's part of the work that we're doing is to discuss these things in ways that are at least as honest as we can discuss them. I, I, again, yes. I don't, it's not here to tell you that this is the way the world is and that we're 100% right, but instead to say, hey, we're at least willing to have the conversation. And, Absolutely. Uh, we hope for the listeners at time it's, it's humorous, obviously, if we're talking about the 2024 election uh, and we're laying the foundation for future discussions. We do, have to, we do have to lay the foundation in a way that makes clear what we're talking about. But also, again, once again, trusts the listener to, to understand and know mm-hmm. that we are doing all of this in good faith, uh, even when we're making jokes or doing impressions, underlying all of that work is, is a good faith attempt to expand what we think is important conversation surrounding the things that are uh, pressing in our time. And highlighting outright cynicism right. that has at least, and, and this is the way that I envision how the development of the right-wing movement over the past 30 years, maybe close to 40 years at this point, has evolved. Right. You know, it's that, okay, our policies are unpopular, but we keep winning elections, so... Asterisks there. Right, asterisks, asterisks, asterisks. Yep. And then, well, now we've got somebody that'll, you know, in a take it in a populist tone and then right. just take over everything. Right. And that and that's also another worry of mine is like, yeah, you look at the the structural uh, things where we being people who favor small D democracy mm-hmm. or big D democracy, uh, you know, there are structural inequities, things in the Senate, you know, valuing land over population. Certainly mm. the Electoral College, we've seen uh, two of the last four or five elections uh, go to an individual who lost the popular vote. And then, by the way, went on to do consequential things like invade a nation uh, with on false pretenses, like just straight up lied and went to war with a country. Uh, and then another one who, as we just discussed, did all the, the terrible things. Sought and, to invade his own country. And, sought, and didn't, did, yeah, and did and still maintains to this day some element of uh, uh, provoking a domestic insurgency, a sustained domestic insurgency against democratic institutions. And so when you have a party infrastructure that's willing to support that, mm-hmm. uh, it becomes concerning. And the reason it becomes concerning is because they, they, the tail begins to wag the dog. Right. And so that, therefore, I would ask you, what, what is the motivation for that? What is the motivation for, I mean, money and power. Uh, of course, yes. From their perspective, it's money and power uh, and pers- per- power over people. I mean, you know, in a lot of these circles, my my understanding is that these people, they are themselves embracing nihilism, whether or not they believe it. It's a nihilistic way of thinking to think the voters are stupid. Let's just take advantage of them. Let's just push this down their throat. You know, who's the president doesn't really matter. And so what we're really interested in is advancing our general ideology, which is to take over the court and do these things and mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. Or um, much, much the less how the congressman in this district, Mr. Molinaro, 
right. said uh, said in an interview in the congressional hallway during the uh, just after uh, Speaker McCarthy was removed that quote the voters of my district don't give a shit who the speaker is close quote right mm, well you're just assuming every single one of your voters or be, just every single one of your constituents right is an uneducated schmuck right leave the schmuckery to dr butler and myself <laughs> right let the professionals handle the schmuckery yes why why is it uh, yeah i mean this the, the entire ecosystem that's propping up the far right right now is it's entertainment and when you begin to lose mm-hmm. the thread on the importance of maintaining a discourse which is honest and genuine to some extent uh, you begin to, to really lose the thread on what you're trying to do. And again, when you do that, the tail begins to wag the dog. You think you're controlling the base. You think you're manipulating them in a way. And then what happens is, sure, he's stupid, but uh, he lowered our taxes. And we don't like his tweets, but, uh, you know, he got, he got the... the uh, well, he was tough on China. Well, he's right. a really smart guy for not paying his taxes. Yeah, it's all, I mean... Like, oh, okay. And, like, and this is the thing... We're not that stupid. We're actually highlighting a number of things here, which is the way that nihilistic thinking, and certainly nihilistic thinking in political uh, ideology, uh, becomes very quickly contradictory. And when you... Oh, yes. When you are unable to face those contradictions, you allow the nihilism to fester, and when the nihilism is allowed to fester it leads to a very dark and dangerous ideology that then leads to dehumanization. It's all the deep state's fault. Which is the step towards another, uh, even uh, darker uh, type of ideology, which, uh, you know, is is something that history tells us does not play out well. It doesn't end well. So that's the reason why the first snow of 2023 at the Sometimes Weekly headquarters in Binghamton, New York, was on December 31st. It was the deep state's fault because the deep state is controlling the climate and there's nothing you can do about it. It's right. all the deep, deep state's fault. Right. And, you know, there is. A, that's and, true. And there is, by the way, a, a type of nihilism that I think festers on the left as well. But the, the nihilism that festers on the left uh, is usually based more in fact. So, you know, you're joking there about the way that maybe the right would talk about climate change. Yes. Uh, the left. There's a, an appropriate. They look at the science and they see what scientists are saying, and they go, "Oh, this is real nihilism." There's really, actually, is a reason to believe these things and to feel this way, and that's a much diff- more difficult conversation. Maybe one we'll have in the future, but for the oh, moment, we will probably have it. But, um, but for the moment, again, I trust the listener to know we're engaging in these conversations in good faith, and, and we're not trying to discount anyone's very real emotions and feelings. Uh, but we are trying to discount the emotions and feelings, or lack thereof, of the fascists who are. Uh, co-opting the Republican Party and the conservative movement uh, and are looking to expand their wealth and control into infinity, which is not sustainable, which is why this always, always, always in history leads to the collapse of the thing and the people who try to go down this path. Also very oxymoronic that you use the phrase (laughs) co-op. That's that's what that one's for our regular listeners. (laughs) And, and I'll actually, I will confront some of the very co- legitimate concerns uh, I think that uh, p- folks on the left like myself have, which is, okay, in the face of all of these things, uh, Joe Biden's the best we can do, right? Democrat, the Democratic Party is the best we can do. Uh, and the answer to that is very complicated, and, and uh, but it's also very simple. The Democratic Party, the criticisms I just gave you of the Republican Party, I would be willing to engage in a similar conversation though the stakes would change we're not talking about a dark ideology instead we're talking about 
a disconnected ideology, one that doesn't understand mm -hmm. uh, maybe the problems of the working class and of uh, the poor and of the middle class in this country and of the minority in this uh, country, but though espouses as if they get these things uh, in a similar way that the Republican Party does and even actually festers on fear in a similar way that says democracy is at risk, something I'm personally, uh, I personally do, I do I yield that warning. So in this in this um, hypothetical, are you are you saying that the MAGA base does not exist? No, no, the MAGA base exists. Is what I'm saying is that on the left there is also a base which is um, worried because of all the threats we've outlined in the Republican Party. Yes, there is a base, uh, or rather a contingent. I don't know that they're a base because they don't necessarily share the same ideology, but they feel the same sentiment, which is the Democrats. There's no way the Democrats are up to handle this task. To confront these forces, they are too weak, they're too disjointed, uh, they are not willing to confront corporate greed, and so on and so it's, forth. It's electoral PSD, PTSD, electoral PTSD yes. on the part of Democratic voters. Right, and, and it's fair, it's earned. Yes. I mean, you know, when I think back to um, opportunities uh, Democratic politicians have had in the past to codify things like Roe v. Wade or to take action and uh, confront corporate greed. Those actions mm -hmm. have not been taken. If you think about things like Occupy Wall Street and then uh, Barack Obama coming into the office in 2009 with a supermajority in the Senate and a majority in the House and uh, really just, in my opinion, uh, certainly getting Obamacare done, which is a, a very important piece of legislation, I think, uh, in recent history, one of the largest pieces of, of legislation that have, has been important. But aside from that, was not able to really confront some of these real deep systemic issues mm -hmm. um, for one reason or another. And look, I, I think it's very important, too, to talk about people in, in both in the, the Republican Party and the Democratic Party as to remember these are human beings we're talking about. These are people persuaded by their own emotions and understandings. And that context gives us a better understanding of maybe what could have been done. Um, so with my critiques of the Democratic Party sort of laid out and I, I began to get there uh, or at least began to express some of those critiques that I do share with people who uh, see all, all that the far right is doing and saying mm -hmm. that is the Democratic Party really fit to do this. I agree with those and I agree with criticisms of Democratic strategists uh, and the approach that they take uh, where I where I personally diverge uh, from uh, popular opinion uh, this in is, our this is where we dive in our present day is that I do believe Joe Joe Biden is up to the task and and of confronting these forces I actually think he's somewhat uniquely positioned uh, and I struggle to find a member of the Democratic Party uh, that seems better positioned than Joe Biden to confront these forces if only for his ability to explain this situation that we face and then ultimately revert to optimism in the end to bring the light of the message, mm -hmm. the uh, to remind people what the United States has been through in the past and how we've gotten through it in the past, and to bring them into the present battle that we're in. There are legitimate critiques as well for Joe Biden. Uh, his age is really the primary one. It, that is, and it's the one I you know look. He is old. He ha he is eighty one mm -hmm. uh, years old. His age is his age is his age. Uh, you know I, I cannot change that. I cannot defend it. If you're if the age is the concern, look, there you go. I mean, that's it. If you're if that if you really think he is uh, because of his age cognitively declining in a way that is detrimental to the his ability to lead, th it's a fair critique. I disagree that 
he is in cognitive decline in any significant way beyond typical human nature of you get old, you slow down. Right. This and um, stay tuned to episode seven of this podcast series to find out more. The discussion of the president's age vis-a-vis the political climate that is around us is intense, mm-hmm. nuanced, deep, and wide-ranging. And it, it also kind of parlays itself into your, well, I'm, now I'm talking at you and I don't mean to be, your view of human nature sure. to be optimistic that his age isn't the end-all, be-all right. for you. I disagree with that to a to a degree. Sure. I don't I don't disagree with the fact that he has been a good president. He has been a good president. He has accomplishments. I mean, sure, things have gotten have tightened up and been fraught between other nations. And, and, and I, I would maintain, I mean, this is actually a point where on, on foreign policy that with all that's happening in the world, he has walked a an extraordinary tightrope. Yes. Uh, and, and I absolutely agree with that. Yeah. And has been successful at navigating the U.S. through uh, these conflicts um, in a way that has maintained both our our autonomy and our separation, yes. but also our, our obligation in certain ways to uh, and, our, and our morality as well. Right. The, I mean, right. We've seen what ha- what um, Senate Democrats have been um, have what they've been saying about the crisis in Israel. Yeah. They have been able to acknowledge all of the facts that have been yeah. occurring in a in a thoughtful and respectful way right funded by the united states uh which is where your role as an american comes into play to think about these things uh in a in a in a genuine and, and thoughtful way yeah. and again uh, this kind of comes back to the heart of uh, both this podcast and i think the way that uh, I would say Joe Biden em- embraces politics, which is politics should be about good faith discussion. That if you were yes. to make progress uh, in any, uh, w- w- regardless of what your ideology is, if you're to do it in a civil and dem- democratic way, it happens through discourse, discussion, debate, and voting. I mean, voting at the end of the day, representative government, uh, is where the decision is made, and the discourse, discussion, and debate is necessary and when we all suspend good faith when we all decide that no one is uh, acting in a way that is balancing all of these very difficult things and conversations then what we do is undermine our own ability to, to talk about these things and also to make progress on these things what is the key to that um what is the key to maintaining the ability to do that i think it it, it i mean i don't think i have the answer to that to be honest i think i think uh in my case, it is checking my emotional response to things I hear in conversation and it extending the benefit mm-hmm. of the doubt to the person I'm talking to and to understanding that I will never be able to fully understand how a person reached their conclusion, which is also why I make the distinction between uh, the traders like Roger Pebble uh, and Steve Bannon and the people who ultimately support the candidates that they prop up mm-hmm. is that the people that support the candidates that they prop up have uh, have been uh, under uh, the influence of algorithms and constant messaging and rhetoric, which explains to them the world in a way that if you hear it enough, you'll start to see the world that way. And, and so when, when you talk and communicate with these people, you have to accept that even their insanity, to some extent, is good faith. You know, they are not going to give you the good faith benefit. They're going to say you're mm-hmm. a member of the deep state Democrat 
yeah, party. You're, you're a liberal cock. Uh, yeah. You know, that whole, the whole nine the whole The whole thing, that's fine. It's not my job to make a person mm-hmm. like me. And... Uh, what is what is I think my my job uh, in uh, in my young career as a as a uh, political pundit and and, uh, and a doctor uh, is to extend the benefit of the doubt in conversation because I think that's the way persuasion happens. Um, I, again, I want to go back to Joe Biden now because you you sort of indicated uh, something that I think is is helpful, which is uh, his ability to talk about some of these things in foreign policy in a nuanced and, and more specific way. Uh, I, I personally think back to, to Charlottesville uh, when uh, the president of the United States at the time, or was he the president-elect at the time? I can't remember. But he was the president. He was the president. He was at, he was at Trump Tower, which is why I was thinking he was the president-elect. Yeah. But President Trump says there's very fine people on both sides. Uh, and uh, Joe Biden wrote a, an op-ed at the time, which has become the theme of his campaign in 2020 and also of his inaugural address, which I think is imp- – I think is – if, if you have been so consumed by the story of the day, if you want to ground yourself, I hate to recommend uh, this video to the, to the listener, but go back and watch Joe Biden's inauguration. Uh, my sense is he knows what's going on quite well, but he, he describes what we're in as a battle for the soul of the nation. And that is also a very, that, is, that actually is an abstract concept to discuss, the, the yes. soul of a nation. And that requires uh, conversation at at different levels about different things, policy, uh, certainly progress, uh, certainly uh, morality. Uh, Joe Biden talks a lot about dignity. I mean, these are these are uh, concepts that are that require an ability to engage in good faith. And so this is where my personal disagreement with uh, popular culture, which is to complain about Joe Biden's age, is that a lot of people uh, seem to stop at the age that it is he's old and so i'm not going to even consider what he's actually talking about i'm not going to watch speeches of his that he's giving uh i'm not going to engage with it instead i'm just going to uh, begin to shop in my mind around for an alternate path because his age is in 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 my mind as is this person his age is reason enough to uh believe he is not up to the task which from my perspective as nick butler Mm -hmm. in good faith your belief in that, someone's belief in that, uh, is informed by their understanding of the world and their situation, and we have a disagreement. The disagreement being, I don't think he's cognitively declining in the way that uh, is pushed by Instagram reels and uh, the 10-second clips. Mm -hmm. I think if you give him the benefit of the doubt, as I try to give uh, as well to Trump supporters and members of the MAGA uh, movement, which uh, Joe Biden has described as semi-fascism, I give the same benefit of the doubt to the semi-fascists as I do to Joe Biden, which is I assume he's operating in good faith, and I don't think that there's a cover-up of his health in any way. Uh, I think no, uh, instead no. he's he's old, used to have a stutter, uh, and there is he's always the, had one. Yeah, the, there is the typical cognitive decline that happens in old old age, but not one that I'm concerned about. I, I mean, and this is and that's my decision, right? In the same way, that right, of someone's decision to disagree with that and to think. Um, Pete Buttigieg should be the nominee or whoever. I don't know who. I, I you know I don't really know who people put up. Um, yeah, I mean uh, Gretchen Whitmer is someone that people people talk about. Uh, Gavin Newsom is someone people talk about. Uh, I like the Illinois governor J.B. Pritzker. Uh, he's a fellow big boy, uh, and for that reason, uh, I enjoy him as a potential candidate. He also is a little bit further to the left and has a lot of money. I uh, I was a well, and I don't know what has happened to him in the past four years. That's how much I follow this. I was a big Jay Inslee fan. I, and, folks, we found him—the one Jay Inslee fan. Yep, and I uh, was ready to vote for him in 2020. 
uh, in the primaries. Uh, he didn't make it that far. But his his yeah. one issue, yeah, because he he was a, pretty much a single issue guy. Yeah. It was it was all environment. Yes, and and, and again, like, he, I'm yes. And that's another element of what I, I, I the last thing I sort of want to express in terms of talking about democratic politics. Unless you have any questions, uh, Thorne or the listener, if you have questions. Uh, Patreon.com. No, you can email. Oh yeah, actually, and or email. Yeah, email. I was gonna say Nick or at some, or write Nick at sometimesweekly.com. We do have a PO box and we do uh, welcome correspondence. But the last thing I want to say too is that regardless of my support of Joe Biden, and regardless of the way that I think about uh, uh, approaching politics and my personal approach, my God's to honest belief is that there is both space for and a need for uh, individuals who are specialized or activists in a certain area to express themselves in the way that they find most necessary. That I do not want everyone to like Joe Biden. I think that would be really bad. And I don't want everyone to kumbaya around him and pretend that he's not old. That would be weird. That would be very rally-esque. Yes, it would turn into uh, what I think is happening in the other party. Instead, what I want to happen is for, uh, again, people to operate in good faith, that you're an expert in a certain area. You know, your concerns about Joe Biden as a president are uh, legitimate because your perspective is informed by a, a sort of specific issue or a specific cause or whatever it might be in the same way that your concerns with the Democratic Party are going to be based in those things. Please, I welcome the criticism. Mm -hmm. If you don't criticize it, these things are never going to get better. If, if we don't have the left pushing Joe Biden on certain issues, yeah, uh, yeah, yes. you know, we're not going to see the progress that is necessary. And my, you know, the way I see my place in this conversation is, is sort of the optimism, uh, is sort of that, uh, but is also around uh, the need to preserve democracy so that when we preserve our democracy, we are then there to do the work of improving our democracy. For those and having said discussion. For those structural issues like the, the, the makeup of the Senate being based on land and the, and the, uh, the uh, electoral college and so on and so forth. Even the Supreme Court at this point has been totally just uh, taken over by uh, a certain ideology which is antithetical to the majority of the population, mm -hmm. which is holding back certain progress. That underscores my my sense that we need everyone in every one of these positions. So as much as I will express uh, my personal support for Joe Biden, I love the man. Uh, he's an Irish Catholic. He t he's a storyteller. Uh, he makes shit up. Ha like he tells stories and just makes things up, um, and then gets called out on it. And in my mind, I'm just like he's a, he's an Irish Catholic guy. He you you bend you know the corners are bent in a story to make it sound Always. a little bit better uh, and a little bit more interesting and to sort of fit the narrative that he's telling. And look, if you want to call that a lie, I'll sure call it a lie. That's fine. Uh, if you want to point out his plagiarism in the 1980s, that's great. I mean, he did plagiarize a, an Irish uh, writer in the 1980s. Uh, but what people don't talk about is that then after he, you know, admitted that and withdrew from the campaign, him and the writer became friends because it was a sentiment he was trying to convey. And mm -hmm. in having been a student of history, uh, his excuses, he just incorporated his story into it. But Joe Biden, again, welcome the criticism. Uh, my The point of me saying I support him isn't to convince you to support him. It's just, I think it's honestly just to show that there's a different way of thinking than is uh, generally in the media ecosystem uh, that we're all in, the algorithms and so on and so forth. People just don't talk about liking Joe Biden. And I get it. You know, he's old and most people don't like him. <laughs> so it's fair. The, the final topic we'll talk about in our preview of the 2024 election, and apologies, this isn't as funny as our last episode, uh, is uh, the media. 
the me- it, it is the media's obligation to have these discussions in good faith and to explain that the Republican Party is not engaging in good faith and to hold them accountable in real time, to fact check them, to ask them to explain their beliefs and why they believe what they believe and why they lie and why they are willing to support someone who we know has done all these awful things. It comes on the media to serve as the arbiter. I think they call it, what, the fourth uh, the branch? The fourth estate. The fourth estate. The media is necessary in this work because if you have a party that has now control over 30% of the country, which is in a, in a kind of perpetual darkness, which is really what I think is happening on that side, it's then the people in the middle that need to begin to understand what we're up against to understand the true nature of why it is that uh, that large amount of the country has been persuaded by this ideology and to motivate them to reject the darkness to, correct full sail correct or full stop and we're really problematic if if the only people who do that work is one of the two political parties and the current incumbent president if only the democratic party and joe biden are willing to name what we're up against on the far right of the of the political spectrum and what has co-opted entirely uh, the Republican Party and the conservative movement, if it's only Joe Biden and the Democrats speaking out against it clearly and consistently, what happens is that actually can fuel uh, the right's ability to further demonize the left as... Yeah, they, they try to put the shoe on the other foot. They put the shoe on the other foot, and the reason they do that is because when uh, Joe Biden and the Democrats have power and begin to hold the people accountable who have broken the law, uh, then they cast them as uh, undemocratic themselves. The and Biden if the, crime family. And if the media doesn't make clear what's happening, it allows that to further fester, and that's where the people in the middle just get confused. They just don't know what's going on anymore. Correct. The left shouting at the right, fascists, right? I do it. I call them fascists. Yeah. The right shouting at the left, fascists, right? Like, mm-hmm. it just it just begins, well, now we're just picking between two, and I don't know, and uh, I, I don't... So, it becomes incumbent upon the media, the fourth estate, to explain these things in a way that, uh, again, I actually think in a way that does not attempt to maintain complete objectivity. There's an element of subjectivity which is required which is a reporter and a journalist who's trained well will have certain uh, understandings of the world which will pull their knowledge of the objective facts and require them to present them to readers in a more subjective way. Uh, Because if you just state the facts of what's happening, you're not really covering anything. You're not really doing anything. All you're saying is, Okay, uh, Joe Biden is being impeached. Here, here, here's well, that a, right. doesn't tell us anything. Here, here's a fact. Hunter Biden has been federally charged. Right. And my stance is, genuinely, we're supposed to not like Hunter Biden? The guy seems like the coolest guy on the fucking planet. This guy's going out with hookers and doing drugs. He's taking money from foreign countries and whatever he's doing. I don't even know. I don't care because you present it to me and I go, this guy's a cool guy. I say, he's a really cool guy. I wish I could hang out with Hunter Biden. Uh, but uh, Hunter Biden, and then after I after I get past my starstruck nature of Hunter Biden when I see him with his cocaine and his hookers, I think to myself, I wonder what what is it that makes a guy uh, really kind of go down that path? And I go, could it be that his uh, mother and sister were killed in a car accident when he was a child, and his brother Bo and him were injured, and then uh, Bo Biden, when uh, Hunter was an adult, died? Uh, could these things contribute to things like a drug addiction and? other self-destructive... Ba- I don't know. This, again, this is... Uh, I am a doctor, but not that kind of doctor. 
Uh, and so I think uh, when we talk about these things, we're stating really just prepackaged talking points about how we're supposed to talk about these things that we get from the media we consume. And when the media we consume only presents one way of looking at things, uh, and the left, uh, the media on the left is sort of, uh, I think, uh, uh, guilty of this as well, that what, re- what is required in this moment, my sense is, is a full picture. Uh, and once that full picture is maintained or presented, that's when here at the Sometimes Weekly podcast and the Sometimes Weekly newsletter at post.sometimesweekly, that's when we get to start doing a little bit of humor and we get to do a little bit of optimism that we express, look, we get it. We know what's going on. It's, you know, it is what it is, what it is. Uh, again, we're sitting here, we're not going to change it, but uh, uh, there, there is a need for people to uh, engage in these conversations, to talk about these things, uh, and to do so in a way that encourages others to do the same. Uh, and if you're one of our uh, three listeners, we hope you join us on that journey as well. A, uh, a 333 um, batting average does get you into the Hall of Fame. It gets you into the Hall of Fame. And that's why, I mean, uh, as we discussed, I mean, the... the the uh, uh, our research department here at the Sometimes Weekly headquarters has not found any mistakes I've made, so I'm batting uh, 1.000. Uh, that's great, but not everyone can do that. And uh, where where will the R and D department be getting the the bronze to cast your bust for the Hall of Fame? They uh, well, it's interesting. Uh, it depends on on the bronze markets. Obviously, uh, the global markets are in flux right now because of the deep state. Because of the deep state uh, controlling the markets and the dollar, uh, and then the, you got BRICS coming in here: the Brazil, Russia, India, mm. China. Uh, South Africa. I mean, these people, are, these uh, these other countries are are banding together and saying we we don't like that America's ruled the global economy forever, and then we got to go. Well, yeah, Bretton Woods, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And so, uh, to answer your question, uh, it, it will be determined based on uh, the bronze market at the time. Uh, but but uh, work has begun. And I know we alluded to earlier our international audience. I do know that some of our some members of our international audience all do live in um, one of the BRICS countries. Oh, well, very fascinating. We say hello to you, and uh, we hope it's not China, uh, because China is an authoritarian state. I guess Russia, too. Uh, yeah. Oh, my God. BRICS, Russia, China. The Russ seem fine, I think. Uh, <laughs> is India still assassinating people in other foreign countries? Is that Canada they Probably. have? They were trying to assassinate. We don't, way, we, we don't follow up on, uh, yeah. dare we say, Indian affairs, yeah, we, subcontinental affairs. Well, again, I'm sitting across from someone wearing a robe and a wig in honor of a British monarch, uh, sort of a, rather a British uh, way of government. We probably should not discuss India any further and let them handle their own affairs and assassinate. We should, their, probably, <laughs> we should probably Amritsar this entire passage out of the podcast. <laughs> uh, you know. So again, that that first topic is a little heavy because very, very heavy because it's uh, it's just necessary to lay the foundation and, and it's necessary to, to to sort of have the conversation in a way that uh, again makes clear of both our understanding of the situation and our understanding of the emotions that go into it, but also to present to you the listener an understanding of us. Who are we? Yes. Why are we approaching this where, in the way that we are? Where does this podcast originate? Its thought, and I I love using the term vis a vis. Because it yes. it's a fantastic term. Yes. Where does this podcast originate and matriculate vis-a-vis the political climate that we're in, given all current situations that arise in 2024? And how does that relate to what the election is going to look like? That's right. 
I do want, and I do want to say uh, this. I think this episode is actually important uh, for the one listener remaining. is important because this is a bit of a preview of the second element of this podcast, and and I should clarify now why I do refer to uh, Mr. Adam Thorne, Mister. Adam Thorne as my sometimes co-host, uh, and that is because uh, an element of this podcast in the near future will be interviews, interviews with people who are members of government, members of the press, members of society, uh, and this will bring in a different perspective and will uh, demonstrate that these conversations are necessary, but before those conversations happen, as Thorne just discussed, it's important to explain uh, to the listener where our views come from and why they are what they are, uh, so that when we engage or rather when I engage, because uh, Thorne will not be there. Uh, maybe he will, I actually don't know. I think it'd be funny if uh, we had a serious guest uh, sitting across from a man wearing a suit and a man wearing a wig and a robe. Uh, and that brings us to Adam Thorne's British Invasion. And now we'll play the real music. And this brings us to Adam Thorne's British Invasion. Uh, Mr. Thorne is here to talk today about another element of obscure British society and culture. Uh, not so much politics this week that I'm aware of, although we'll see, and maybe there's something I'm not aware of. But uh, this week, we're going to be discussing uh, the sport of darts. I thank you for that introduction, Dr. Butler. My pleasure. Um, because you did acknowledge it as a sport. Oh, yes. Um, there, there have been some pushes to get darts into the Olympics. All right, well, let's, I, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Yeah, I don't think it, that should be happening. But, yes, it, it is a sport. A, it is popular both, you know, in America and, well, it's, it is more popular in Europe as a competitive sport. Right. In this country, it's more of a, you know, bar game pastime. That does turn us into a conversation because what I know about darts is uh, in the bar. Uh, mm -hmm. What I don't know about darts is the professional element of it. Yes. Uh, what is the history of this, I suppose you say, sport? Yeah, so, I mean, it, it originated as a, as a pub game in Britain, late 19th, early 20th centuries. And it was originally thought that it was a game of luck. This had to be proved in a British court. Oh. That it was not a game of luck. They had, they regarded, I don't remember what his name was, but it was a, a top player of his mm -hmm. day, hit a 20. Yeah. Hit a 13, hit a 3, yeah. and he was able to do them, and that was the proof that it was not. Now, now what's really great about that uh, that example is you just said what sounded to me like luck. <laughs> because I don't know what the value of those numbers you said were, but it's but the, the implication of having been proven in a court of law that hitting those three uh, numbers in succession or hitting those three numbers in aggregate. Or any three numbers. Really. would be uh, skill. So was he at, was this player asked to hit those numbers yes. specifically? Yes. Uh, was it once, or did they make him I'm, them do uh, it multiple that times? That I'm unsure of. I haven't reviewed the uh, the British darts luck case You haven't gone into recently. The, the, yeah, uh, the, I was aware that it was a thing that had happened. Yeah. So as we, as we get closer into the 60s and 70s, that's really the early 70s when it becomes fully organized. Right. And there, um, there was finally a world championship that was started, I believe it was 1977, and this is where our R&D team will be hard at work trying to disprove anything that I say. Yeah, I think right now they're, they're looking into Jimmy Carter trying to uh, change to the metric system and how that may have, you know, sort of encouraged the British uh, 
individuals to pursue darts as a professional sports and how those things are related. Uh, but our I will be publishing a paper on that. I was going to say our R and D department gets really goes off on tangents, and I think uh, if they don't fix these tangents, you know, I'm not, I'm going to stop uh, listening to their advice. Well, I just it's all about the law of cosines. <laughs> <laughs> so there, there's now a world championship, or there, we're now in the a, mid to late seventies. A darts world championship. World championship. Now the game that they're playing, their darts is five hundred one darts, which means which means you start at a score of five hundred and one. Okay. And by hitting targets on the on the dartboard with a with a treble ring or three times the score, yep. and a double ring, and well, on the outside as well as a bullseye that has the inner bowl for 25 yep. and 50 points. You start at 501, and by throwing the darts, you subtract the points accrued per turn mm-hmm. to get to zero. And then you must end on a double. So if you have eight left, for instance, you have to hit double four. You can't just hit a single eight. Okay. So if you hit a single eight, you would bust your score. You go back to eight. Okay. Wow. The the professional game grew and grew grew very steadily in the late 70s and early 80s. And how how now okay, let's set the stage in the sure. 70s and 80s. Were people good at this? Uh, yes, you you could reasonably say that they were good at it. Um they there weren't really average statistics cuz now in in the professional game they keep track of every single dart that is thrown to keep, you know, what is their average for three darts right in a match. That wasn't as rudimentarily done in those days as it is now. They were handling it much more like the pub game. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's... Even a- though this is televised, I'm still going to slam a pint of Carling down. Right. And I'm going to go up there and start playing right. darts. And there was no, one's, no, no one nerdy enough to say, mm, I'd like to keep a closer eye on this. They were instead just uh, drunks and yes. uh, repressed British men. Yes, and and men, I assume mostly men at the time. All men. All men at the time. And also officials that were wearing bow ties. Oh wow! So yeah. that's where they took it serious. Yeah. Okay. But so that's the seventies and eighties. Yeah, and so now you get to the late eighties. It's starting to decline a little bit because of declining revenue. There was the group that controlled the world championship was known as the British Darts Organization. Yeah, the BDO. I, I like that this idea that uh, darts had a heyday in the seventies and oh, early eighties, yes, and the fact that darts could go through a decline uh, is humorous to me. Uh, so darts is in decline in the late eighties. Yeah, and into the early nineties. Yeah, in our in our research and development, they're looking at the uh, implications and relationship between the fall of the Soviet Union uh, and the uh, slow. It was really the fall of the Thatcher government. Again, it was it... really the po- the poll tax and declining revenue in darts are really they go hand in hand. They go hand in hand. So says our R and D department. In nineteen ninety, well, I guess it really would have been nineteen ninety two, nineteen ninety three. There were a group of players. Okay. They broke away from the British Darts Organization and formed what now is called the Professional Darts Corporation. So that's that's where the... Real creative bunch. Yes, the British Darts and Professional Darts question that you had asked earlier, that's how that was very prescient. The in time over the course of probably the next 15 years going into the the middle part of the aughts that's where the pdc had fully taken over and became the established circuit for professional players right. 
and that the BDO was now kind of a feeder circuit and doing developmental stuff. There's, it, it's was done on a lower level, even yeah. though they still had their own world champion. Right. They went back to the pubs. And right. There was yeah. so there were dueling world champions that sure. never met and never sure. played each other. Sure. And it's so called the split and darts or the schism and darts. Right. And that's from the year we were born. So it's it's very wow. You know, wow. Yeah, it's big news. Right. That explains why you're interested. Of course. Now the BDO, as of a couple of years ago, is now defunct. Doesn't exist anymore. The last BDO World Championship um, wasn't even on television. It was it was streamed on YouTube, and it was it was rough. It was rough to watch. Yeah. Um, now you know, like the winner of the World Darts Championship for the PDC, or just I guess it would be the one World Darts Champion this year, will get a half million pounds. A half of a million uh, pounds, pounds sterling. Sterling. Yes. That's a, that's in American dollars. Uh, let me do the calculations More. here. Beep, 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 it's like seven hundred, six hundred and thirty-one thousand dollars. Off by a hundred thousand. That's you know. That's a, what's a hundred thousand dollars between that's, friends? That's an accounting error. Uh, Just move the decimal. <laughs> that's an accounting error that sends George uh, Santos to jail. Uh, okay, so uh, the winner now gets five hundred thousand pounds. Mm-hmm. So we get into the middle two thousands. That's when the Professional Darts Corporation sort of begins to take the uh, the reins from the BDO. BDO yes. stands for what again? British Darts Organization. The British Darts Organization. That's are, organization spelled with an S. Oh boy. These are so these are really uh, again creative individuals who have decided to take up the profession of, of darts and yes. to uh, turn it into organizations and corporations. Yes. And their omnipresent world champion, at least in the PDC. Yes. Phil Taylor. Phil Taylor. That's what I wanted to talk about. First There's bef- only one Phil Taylor. One Phil Taylor. So this man, if you know nothing about darts, and that is everyone, if you know nothing about darts, uh, your introduction as a as a modern darts fan should probably begin. Uh, w- correct me if I'm wrong. With Phil Taylor, if yes. you're interested in a player at least. Yes. Uh, Phil Taylor. Uh, tell me. Tell me about Phil Taylor. Well, he he won the world championship 16 times. Holy shit! <laughs> Wait. But, yeah. That's a lot of pounds. Yeah, a lot of pounds. This, is this man rich from darts? Yes. He's, he's a millionaire from he's darts. Dart he's, rich. Yeah, he's dart oh, rich. Good. That beats dart mouth. Uh, so Phil Taylor has won 16 times, mm-hmm. which I believe is the number of times Ric Flair won the world title uh, in professional wrestling. Educate so me about this, Dad. He's, he's the Ric Flair of professional darts. Uh, and he's not only the Ric Flair of professional darts in the fact that he's won the world championship of the Professional Darts Corporation 16 times, mm-hmm. but he's sort of the Ric Flair of darts because he does maintain a swagger. Uh, oh, yes. I don't know if uh, now I don't know again I don't know much about darts, uh, but there is production around these things. These things are not happening in basements in bars. Oh no, these are these are happening at large stages. Lots of lo- lots of LED lights, lots of loud music, and it's very funny because a lot of these players, I mean, not not as much now, but if you watch darts from maybe ten years ago, they're still walking out to you know songs from the seventies and eighties right. in large arenas with LED displays and lights and smoke and fire and yeah. the whole nine yards and with very uh, objectified skin. 
expansion clad women walking them out. Sure, uh, right. There's a lot of that too. So, so the professional wrestling element of it actually seems to be an app. There uh, is a comparison. lot of production quality and value, legitimate production sure. quality and value sure. to it as well. Legitimate, but again, in the same way that I think of uh, th- the work that I do here with Sometimes Weekly, there, it seems like there's a bit of a an overproduction. There's a bit of a too much. We Should we, this is probably, we should get in touch with Barry Hearn, who was okay, the Hearn. former CEO of the PDC, and he was the one that really brought it into yeah in, 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 into the forefront. You know, I said uh, I, I said uh, uh, some moments ago on the podcast that uh, Adam Thorne, uh, as my sometimes co-host, would not be participating in the interviews. Although you have just suggested a, a fantastic thing, which is you can participate in any interviews with British guests, and then your outfit will make me even happier uh, because we will have to explain to British guests why you're wearing a wig and a robe. Uh, before we ask them about their involvement in professional darts. The thing is, Barry Hearn is such a promoter, he might actually come on this podcast. Well, well uh, welcome to the whole concept of Sometimes Weekly, which is people will probably do it. And, and for your entertainment as well, since he's not a lord, I'll still have to that's, wear that's, the robe and wig. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Uh, and so Phil Taylor is... In my estimation, with the limited knowledge I know, sort of like a Ric Flair uh, in these comparisons. We watched the 2018 World Final together. The 2018 World Final. So every single year, the championship has a final around what time of, of the year? Uh, so the cha- the cha- at least for this year, the championship match will be tomorrow, a date in January. January 3rd. And tonight, or today, as we're going right now, the semifinals are on. And okay. yesterday, we watched a little bit of the quarterfinals. Yep. First time in quite a few years, it is an all-English semifinals. Okay. So other countries are now involved. Now the world... Oh, they uh, have a full international qualifying list now. I assume that was different in the 70s and 80s. My guess is that expanded yeah, over time. Yeah, Foreigner was a guy from Wales. Okay. Um, so, the tw- so Phil Taylor... Uh, I do want to. I want to stick on him for a moment longer. Sixteen world championships. What is he in that run? Is, mm-hmm. Are there moments he's known for? Is there is there any sort of uh, times he's he's uh, really blown the roof off the dart? Yes. Roof. Yes. It, what, however, this wasn't in the world championships. This was in. They have their own Premier League. Okay. And in the final one year, he hit. Two nine dart legs in the same game. Now you're about to ask me, what's the significance of that? I yeah, I don't know. So yeah. nine darts is the fewest amount of darts possible to finish a game of five oh one. So to start at five hundred and one, there is such a way that you can throw simply nine darts in a row. Yep. As an individual player, you throw nine darts and you subtract from the dartboard the score of five hundred and one yes. and you finish in as an efficient way as possible. Yes, and he did it twice in one game. Twice was, in one game? Twice in one game. And How it, rare is this occurrence? It's never happened. Oh, so it's it never happened? Only, it is the only time it has ever happened. So in one game to hit a nine-dart finish twice has only happened once, yep. and it was Phil Taylor who did it. Yes, against James Wade. It almost happened in the 2013 World Championship semifinal by Michael Van Gerwen, who we saw that lost yesterday. Sure. Um, but he missed his last dart at double 12. He, But his was 
it almost happened in consecutive legs. Okay, that would have been e- that would have been impressive. That so, would have been even more. So insane not, run me fell. through a nine dart finish. A nine dart finish is the first one you're going to throw, and what what score are you looking for in your first three darts? So a typical nine dart leg, as if it's something that's typical, and it's really not because I mean, I've never thrown a 180, and I'm going to assume you probably haven't as haven't either. I wake up every day and I throw. I just one ninety. Uh, so that is that is three treble twenties, and that so that's the highest score you can. Yeah, get. it's the highest mathematical score you can get on a dartboard. So board. twice in a row, you're going to want to subtract the most you can, which is one hundred and eighty. Yes. Uh, as Thorne. So just if you do hundred and eighty twice, that leaves you with hundred and forty-one. Okay. The standard way to check out, or quote unquote, standard way to check out one four one is another treble twenty. So there's seven of them. A treble nineteen for fifty-seven. That 117 from the 141 leaves you with 24, double 12, bang. Yep. The other way, if you ha- if you were on 141, would be treble 20, then treble 15 sure. to leave you with 36 left, double 18. Okay. Phil's first leg in his 2-9 dart His historic 2-9. Uh, which two I believe was the second, dart the, yeah, the second leg of this match in a race to 10. He started with 174. Mm-hmm. Treble 20. Trouble 19, trouble 19. Then a 180, he was left with 147, which he went trouble 20, trouble 17, trouble 18. Sure. His second nine dart leg was the two 180s, then 141. You can go find crowd videos from when he has done this, and the amount of beer that is just chucked into the air is fascinating people were very happy that they had seen what they knew was and the con- yes because despite despite the court's ruling uh, some years ago uh that proved uh beyond a reasonable doubt i don't know if that's the standard by which uh british I assume, maybe, maybe civil a, courts maintain a preponderance of the evidence uh proved that darts was not simply luck that indeed uh, an individual is able to warp space and time and gravity in a way that uh, they can uh, navigate their way to triple 20s. What do you say? Treble. Treble. Triple? Treble. Trip. Okay. T-R-E-B-L-E. Oh, you've got trouble. Right here, I say trouble right here in River City. Why, sure, I'm a billiard player. Certainly mighty proud to say I'm always mighty proud to say it. I consider that the hours I spend with a cue in my hand are golden. Uh, but we're talking about darts. Now, despite the court ruling that it's a game of skill... The fans in the stands at that uh, moment in history when Phil Taylor hits two nine-dart finishes Mm -hmm. realize that there is some element of luck that goes into it. Uh, Certainly a highly skilled person can do it, but to do it twice in one game is uh, an element of luck, as with anything great in life, uh, an element of luck comes into it. Absolutely. And And that's... I think the beauty of sports and the beauty of uh, things like uh, the Professional Darts Corporation is that they are propping up uh, games and activities which uh, can uh, uh, show the combination of both skill and luck to culminate in a moment like a Phil Taylor 2-9 dart finish, hitting three treble 20s twice in a row and then finishing off with 141. Godlin bins! 
want people to know about uh, the entertainment that is professional darts, the entertainment value it presents, the camaraderie, the atmosphere, the uh, the announcing. I mean, that's an element. The that announcing is hysterical. Thorn has gotten into uh, by way of shouting 180 into yeah, your ears, or, or a commentator shouting, "I don't believe my Godlin bends." You know, it's very likely when you're listening to this, the winner of the finals probably has been determined. Certainly the winner of the semifinals has been determined because that's happening actively. Uh, and you'll be able to look up who won this. So not only will you be able, as the listener, to go to YouTube and type in Phil Taylor uh, and see uh, him hit his two nine-dart finish in one game, mm-hmm. but you'll be able to go to YouTube and see the conclusion of the 2024 World Darts Championship. And if you're if you're someone who likes playing darts and you didn't know this existed, I mean your your mind's going to be blown to some extent that people have taken it to this level. Yes, by the the sheer ability and just how ridiculously accurate they are and the British commentary. I mean, it's wild. Yep. It's how unique it is versus what how you would consume sport in this country is another tantalizing little, little nugget to get. Yeah. It's definitely something to check out. It's probably more uh, accessible than maybe uh, other elements of British culture. It might be good to start with the darts and then work your way to the only connects, uh, the, the cricket and the snooker. panel shows, or the other sports like uh, cricket and uh, the we'll, other one. We'll, he said. we'll have a v- we're, one of these times. We'll have a nice discussion about cricket. Oh dear fucking lord! Uh, what we, do you want to do? Snooker next? I I would rather that we never speak again. <laughs> <laughs> Good, because if it is snooker, we won't speak. <laughs> this, is, uh, this is the uh, grave I've dug for myself. The uh, bronze statue will soon be lowered into the grave. Uh, and I'll lock Elizabeth II. And along She's with lowered it, into the vault. Along with it, my uh, serious endeavor as a as a uh, intrepid political pundit, which is being dragged down by having to discuss uh, treble 20s. Um, thank you, Thorne, again for that uh edition of british invasion and for this episode i mean thanks thanks for joining me as always yes Uh, my pleasure i do want to plug a couple things here uh in the way that i'm supposed to share it like it download it subscribe it uh go to the the newsletter post.sometimesweekly.com consider supporting uh, us on patreon Uh, you can go to sometimesweekly.com to get all of these links uh until next time this has been the sometimes weekly podcast i'm nick butler your host Uh, Joined, as always, by my sometimes co-host, Mr. Adam Thorne. Cheers. Cheers.